0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we have a very special episode on the history of surgery with Dr. Don Nakayama. Dr. Nakayama is a pediatric surgeon and professor of surgery at the University of North Carolina. He completed his medical and surgical training at the University of California, San Francisco, followed by his pediatric fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He also earned a master's in business administration from the UNC Kenan Flagler Business School. If his name sounds familiar, it is because Dr. Nakayama is the surgical historian of our time. He has numerous publications and journals and is very active in APSA and ACS online communities with very interesting stories to tell. We are excited to have him join us to share a few of these. Welcome, Dr. Nakayama. Thank
2: you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor. Uh, sir, the pleasure and honor is all ours. Uh, so to kick things off, why don't you tell us more about yourself, where you're from, where you trained, what inspired you to go into surgery?
0: I grew up in Denver, and it was in Denver that I actually got a job at the Denver Post, which is the daily newspaper there. And I was adopted by a Japanese-American uh, journalist who was associate editor there. And uh, at that time, my father had just passed away, and so he kind of adopted me as, his, as, as my surrogate father. And he helped foster my uh, uh, my education by teaching me how to write. And so as in, at the Denver Post, I was first a copy boy, which is kind of like an internal delivery boy, delivering messages here and there throughout the, throughout the, the building, uh, running stories to the press room and running stories back and forth from the writers to the editors. And then, uh, when I got into college, he gave me a job as, a, as an intern and that, that gave me spending money, but it also, uh, uh, taught me how to write and, uh, have multiple projects going at the same time. So doing that gave me appreciation for telling a good story. I don't really see myself as being a historian, but I see myself very much as being a journalist and telling stories so that people can understand and, and appreciate the background that we have in our wonderful field. So as as I continued to matriculate, I I, gra- I, I gravitated away from journalism and toward. Toward medical school, and I went to medical school at Cal, where I met uh, Michael Harrison and Alfred Delorme, both pediatric surgeons who had a great, obviously great influence on my on my subsequent career. And I was inspired by their example. To me, uh, pediatric surgery is applied embryology, and embryology is uh, is to me magical how you start from just a fertilized ovum and come up, come up with a, a, a complete human being. Uh, and the choreography of development is really exemplified by pediatric surgery, where we have to deal with uh, surgical repair of anomalies where things go wrong, basically. And so we rotated on uh, Dr. DeLormer and Harrison's service as second years, just as uh, just right out of the internship. But we had the responsibility of working up the patients and, and staffing all the cases. And that included the index cases. And I remember distinctly, we had this busy evening in which uh, we had a number of operations and Dr. Harrison had to go uh, get some Chinese food from the neighborhood uh, from the neighborhood uh, Chinese restaurant that's right next to uh, uh, the University of California Hospital. And he got sick. And so what happened was he got so sick that he was throwing up in the in the scrub sink and it was on the floor because he couldn't stand. And we had a child who had malrotation and volvulus. And so there I was a second year and this child who had volvulus and we needed an operation. And so the only thing that I could do is just ask for the knife. And I had seen enough examples of that, that I knew how to open, I knew how to, how to deal with the umbilical vein, I knew how to, not to damage anything going in. And I knew how to untwist the bowel. And the child had a volvulus, had a twist. And I was able to do things until Mike could recover and complete the operation. But it was that kind of incident that really s- cinched my decision to go into pediatric surgery, and it's, uh, it's been an inspiration ever since.
1: So jumping right into our dissection of the day and talking about surgical history, the first question I have is uh, you said yourself that you know you think of yourself as a journalist and these sh- stories should be shared. My question for you is why should these stories be shared? Why do we need to know about our surgical history?
0: I think we need to know about our surgical history see how far we've come and how, all the people that it took to get the specialty to where it is today. If you think that all of a sudden we got where we are with laparoscopic surgery, you don't appreciate the many small steps and missteps that took to get here. And uh, it's bewildering to, to, to figure out how many people and how many insights and how many you know, really patients had to go through what really were horrific uh, experiences with surgery in order to get to
2: where we are today. That's right. So let's go to the beginning. Let's start at the very start. Um, There's lots of folklore surrounding how surgery began. Uh, Did it truly begin with barbers?
0: Yeah, it began with barber surgeons because they're, they're the ones who had the sharp instruments. And because they had sharp instruments that they needed to cut hair and trim beards, uh, they also had the sharp instruments for phlebotomy, which is the, which is the main way they had of treating you know, illnesses at the time, lancing abscesses and pu- pulling teeth. And uh, the first, f- uh, you know, modern surgeon is Ambrose Perret, who was in 16th century France. He's considered to be the father of modern surgery. He was apprenticed to a barber and he had the duties of sweeping the shop, trimming hair, trimming beards. And then it was his time, long before the shop opened, and long after it after it shut down, that he had to devote himself to study uh, study surgery. And it was only at that time that he was allowed to read texts and attend lectures. Uh, he was actually prohibited from going to the university because his uh, his master thought it was a waste of time, but but the master did teach him techniques of uh, phlebotomy and bleeding that he needed to uh, do to become a, to become a surgeon. Um, the concept of going beyond just trimming hair and, and, and trimming beards though, and actually treating patients was actually responsible of Guy de Chaliac uh, in the 14th century, a surgeon of the Middle Ages who emphasized courtesy, compassion, safety, and concepts that we associate with professionalism today. Um, In England, the worshipful company of barbers dated from 1308. And it was in 1540 that Thomas Vickery, who was the, who was the surgeon to Henry VIII, got the king to charter the company of barber surgeons in in the city of London. It wasn't until the 18th century in 1745 that the company of surgeons broke off from the barber surgeons and formed the uh, the company of surgeons which is the forerunner of uh, the Royal College of Surgeons. So that's our that's our roots. It's in barber surgery that's why uh, even to this day the surgeons are are, are called mister as opposed to doctor because the internists and the and the and the, and the uh, medical doctors Uh, considered themselves to be doctors and wanted to differentiate themselves from from the barber surgeons, and the barber surgeons took that as a uh, a mark of pride and continued to call themselves Mister.
1: We're going to go through uh, just a few anecdotes since uh, we don't have time to sit with you and go through the entire history, but everyone even prior to joining medical school, learns about the Heimlich maneuver. And we all have some sort of, some level of knowledge about it, but I don't think everyone realizes that he was a surgeon who had more contributions, including the Heimlich valve. My question for you is, where did he start and what's his story in developing that maneuver?
0: Well, Henry Heimlich was a thoracic surgeon and really saw himself as an inventor and an innovator. And his Heimlich valve was basically just a, just, a uh, Penrose drain that allowed fluid and air to egress, but not go back in, and it obviated the need for a water seal in, uh, in chest tubes. Um, he was inspired by a description of cafe coronary in the, in the mid uh, 1960s. Uh, a coroner in Fort Lauderdale described patients dying of choking on food. And in the course of doing their autopsy, he found large boluses of food that stuck in their glottis, and 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 they choked to death. And so he called it cafe coronary. The name stuck, and it was such a such a a a vivid uh, name to for a for a commonplace malady that it was in very much in the public eye that uh, that choking was a real health hazard. Um, the coroner who 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 coined the term invented a long forceps that he wanted to uh, he wanted people to buy and to apply but Heimlich uh thought of something different he 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 his insight was to pop the obstruction out from below and so he tried to figure out how to do it. And so what he did was he took uh, d- a dogs under sedation who were still spontaneously breathing, plugged up their ET tube, and tried out a number of different maneuvers. And the one that worked was pushing from below because compressing the chest just, just didn't just didn't work. It just pushed the diaphragm down. And he finally figured out that pushing the diaphragm up from below was the way to do it. His his hypothesis worked. Okay. And, uh, rather than publish it in a peer reviewed journal, he decided to publish it in a commercial medical journal instead. That's kind of like going out into blogs today, but he, uh, he, he went, he went public with it long before he could get it out in a, in an established journal. And he got it out there in, uh, in an ER journal that had a lot of ads in it, but it, it didn't matter to him because once it was out, then he got a medical writer. To write a story about it, and the medical writer actually got into the New York Times Magazine as a lead article, and that and he hit and he hit hit and he hit a jackpot there. Then, less than a month later, someone did the Heimlich maneuver on someone who was choking on something in Seattle, and the Seattle newspaper picked it up, and then it's history. And so that's that's Henry Heimlich's Heimlich story. The epilogue to that is that he finally got to use his, for the first time, his maneuver himself when he was in a nursing home, and one of his fellow uh, residents was uh, was choking on something, and he got to use his Heimlich maneuver finally, just before he died.
2: Yeah, it makes me really glad that we don't have to revert to Heimlich forceps when that happens, <laughs> just use the maneuver. Correct, uh, it, so it, it saved hundreds of thousands of lives, there's no question about it. Absolutely. Uh, So switching gears, um, a little bit more sobering, but we've uh, lost quite a few stalwarts in our field recently. Dr. Basil Pruitt was one of our earlier guests, and he passed away in March. We all know he pioneered burn research and trained numerous leaders in trauma and acute care surgery. Uh, What has been his greatest impact? Basil was a real friend of mine uh because
0: he helped so much with the Surgical History Group of the American College of Surgeons he could be counted on for great leadership all the first programs of the Surgical History Group at the Clinical Congresses of the American College of Surgeons were due to his leadership and he's, he'll be sorely missed Basil was a military surgeon's military surgeon let me tell you because he was commander and director of the busiest evacuation hospital in Vietnam during the height of the conflict in in 1967 and 1968. Uh, He went from there to be the director of the U.S. Army Institute of of Surgical Research for the next almost three decades. At a festrift uh, held by the University of Texas San Antonio, Ronnie Stewart, who's chair of surgery there, listed 25 separate clinical and and scientific accomplishments that he was responsible for during his time as director. Dr. Pruitt uh, had four that he most valued and, and they are with his mentor, John Moncrief, the development of topical antimicrobial therapy for burn wounds and the control of burn wound sepsis, huge. Uh, the second is refinement of burn resuscitation protocols to maintain perfusion without overloading the patients. The, all the different formulas that we have of guiding fluid management in the early phases of burn care is, is absolutely just gigantic. Um, he was responsible for the early diagnosis and treatment of inhalation injury. That's, that's due to his work. And the final one is the definition of hypermetabolic responses and response to burns. And so all those are are gigantic accomplishments that really put him in the first rank of, of clinical scientists. Probably his biggest impact is the next generation of academic surgeons that he, that he trained. That include Jerry Schuck, William Carey, Joseph Moreland, Douglas Wilmore, Jim O'Neill, and William Chaffee. And these, uh, that, that generation of, of surgeons have just magnified because they in turn have trained uh, academic uh, surgeons in his example. So Basil Perret is one of the main figures in academic surgery in the 20th century.
2: Switching gears once again, we all know there have been some famous feuds between giants in our profession. I mean, you've talked about Ladd and Gross on the Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery podcast. So, let's talk about Debakey and Cooley. It's a feud that was so well known that it's the cover story of New York Times. What happened between them? It was also a cover story for Life
0: Magazine, which at the time was the biggest news magazine of uh, of 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 the country. Um, It is probably the most famous 20th century professional feud. In the 1950s, DeBakey and Cooley were partners in Baylor College of Medicine and Methodist Hospital, and their work were developing heart and aortic operations that were groundbreaking at the time. Okay, the medical profession is full of feuds, but the one between Michael DeBakey and Denton Cooley is the most famous. Uh, In the 1950s, they were actually partners at the Baylor College of Medicine and the Methodist Hospital, and they were developing heart and aortic Surgeries that were groundbreaking at the time, but are not, but are now basic. Okay, it's, it's, they're they're still doing these operations. As is often occurs, the, the Bakey, the mentor, and Cooley, the mentee, had a ev- evolution of the relationship. And as Cooley became busier and busier and busier, and and the Bakey became more involved with administration, as 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 senior surgeons sometimes do, there's a j- jealousy and rivalry that that developed between them, and at to the point where in 1960, Cooley moved about. 600 yards down the street to St. Luke's Hospital where he established the Texas Heart Institute. And so they had rival uh rival operations, rival systems and uh, and they competed, actually act- actively competed. But the thing that really sparked the 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 feud, the feud, capital T capital F feud was in 1969 when Cooley needed a heart for a heart transplant patient, but he didn't have a he didn't have a donor and so the patient was dying of heart failure, and so he needed something to to bridge the bridge the 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 time and and uh, up to the point where he can get a get a get a donor heart. DeBakey had a grant to develop an artificial heart. And uh, he had one, but he 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 was dissatisfied with it because he just it just didn't seem to work. He had put it in calves, baby baby calves. And it, and he was dissatisfied with the performance, so it was it was it was not working. He had a lab assistant who was disgruntled because because Debakey was so busy with his other duties. He was chancellor of the Baylor University at the time, and uh, he didn't the, the lab assistant didn't think that he was paying enough attention to this project. Cooley knew that 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 they had this prototype. Uh, uh, of a, of a heart assist device or artificial heart. He had this patient who needed one, so he got the lab assistant to bring it over to St. Luke's, and he implanted the thing in, into his patient, okay? Violating all ethics, okay? Including theft. <laughs> so what happened was uh, Bakie, uh, DeBakey was out of town. He didn't know anything about it. And um, he found out about it when colleagues at the National Heart Institute told him about it, and he was embarrassed. Because he didn't know anything about it and he was horrified that Cooley would, would, would break a whole list of confidences and, and ethical, ethical rules. He flew back to Baylor and immediately started an investigation and, and he said that Cooley you, Cooley's use of the artificial heart broke all the federal rules, and it jeopardized Baylor's grants, of which there were you know millions and millions of dollars at risk. Um, there was actually litigation, but the Bakey decided not to testify against Cooley because he didn't he didn't he didn't want to to go to that length. But but the rift was so deep that they didn't speak to each other for decades. The feud continued until the Bakey was ninety nine and Cooley was 87. And the Denton Cooley Carter Surgical Society awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award and a medal to DeBakey, which he accepted. And so that was the final rapprochement, the denouement of their relationship. They They, they, were, they weren't friends, but at least they were speaking with each other. And they were photographed in the same room together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's how that story happened.
1: It's always nice when the story has a happy ending like that, <laughs> yeah.
0: you know it's it's tough to take that take that kind of dispute to the grave. and I think that all too often you know it just goes to show you how human we all are
1: mm-hmm. definitely. So you're a pediatric surgeon, and we'd be remiss not to talk about something in pediatric surgery. So one of the interesting stories is that our current non-operative management of trauma patients with solid organ injury actually stemmed from uh, management in children at the Toronto Six Children's Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that developed and, and how that has impacted general surgery as a whole?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, non-operative management of the spleen is, is, was revolutionary at the time that it was, that was espoused in the, in the 1960s. Uh, up until that point, the surgical dogma was if you, uh, if the spleen was injured even a little bit, even if it wasn't bleeding, the risk of bleeding was such that you just removed it. At the time, they thought that the spleen itself did not have any significant function, and one can do without it. But there was a number of good studies up to that point, and known to people up to that point, that indicated that it important it had important immunological functions. Uh, back in the nineteen twenties, there was a study that uh, that challenged uh, rats, uh, spinectomized rats, with uh, with plague bacillus, and the ones that didn't have a spleen died at a higher rate. Um, there were surgeons who suspected that the spleen had something to do with uh, immunology, and that just taking it out was not probably not a good idea. Uh, a review by King and Shoemaker in Indiana uh, really cinched it because they saw that children, particularly infants with hematological diseases, who had splenectomy, were at risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis and had a and then had a huge uh, mortality rate, specifically infants who had undergone spinectomy for uh, hereditary spherocytosis. And that was something that they noted. So the stage was set for preserving the spleen, and every surgeon who did a laparotomy, and there were plenty of laparotomies done at that time, had the experience of having done a laparotomy for blunt or penetrating trauma, saw a spleen that had a laceration, which wasn't actively bleeding. And the first paper that documented that was from the Hospital for Sick Children at, in Toronto by Udp- Udpadhyaya in Simpson uh, in 1968. Uh, but actually, they were drawing on experience that started long before that. Sheriff Emile at uh, in Montreal brought this to my attention. It was actually started by a guy named Tins Wansbro, who was the chief of surgery at uh, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto during the 1940s and 1950s. He so actually was doing it because he actually got it from someone from Montreal named Herbert Owen. And Herbert Owen started to do it because he's like like everyone who takes care of these patients, Some of them, a lot of them don't need, no, don't need surgery and certainly don't need a spinectomy. But he was dissuaded by his chief that he better knock it off or he'd be out of a job. So that's the story of the spleen. Uh, it it was it was expanded later on to solid order, uh, to, to injuries to the liver, and uh, was adopted by the adult surgeons for use in general. Use in general, and there's been literally thousands of patients who have been spared a laparotomy for uh, blunt injury to the uh, spleen and liver because of because of the ex- example that was set
2: like decades ago. Absolutely, that's definitely an impact that's far-reaching. So, to close out, let's finish on a note that is of interest to our surgical educators and trainees: the match. Okay. How did that all start? The match is a great
0: story. Um, before the match, there were a lot more training positions in the applicants. So each year, the hospitals rushed to secure commitments from what they thought were good, good medical students, and the. Best places like Harvard and Hopkins didn't have any problems filling their ma- filling their spots. But the, those at the tier below wanted to get the best students. And the, there are good places like Cornell, like Yale, um, solid academic programs who were in a race to get the best medical students. And so they wanted to get the medical students to commit earlier and earlier and earlier in their fourth year than their third year. And it got so bad that they were getting students to commit during their sophomore year. And so it's a classic game theory. And so there's this rush to get the best medical students. And so with that kind of chaos, the hospital decide, okay, we can't have this. Let's restrict all hiring until the senior year, but what that did was just compress all that in the first couple months of the of the senior year, and so it's still chaotic. It's kind of like what the old match, old scramble was, where you just were calling people and they said, "You've got to commit now, or else, or else you may not have a, have a have a have a have a have a place." That's called a Hobson's choice. You better get this now, or else this 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 position is going to be gone by the time you call back in fifteen minutes. So I decided on, on, on matching preferences, okay, which is the kind of the rudimentary of the current match system. And the students would rank their preferences one, two, three, four, five. And the hospitals would rank their preferences into a top group, a one group, which is equal to the number of spots they had, a second tier equal to twice the number of spots they had, a third tier composed of all the people that they thought would be okay, and a fourth tier that would be only if Numbers one, if there are spots remaining after one, two, and three are gone, and so they uh, they rolled this out and, and they said, okay, well the one to one matches the hospital first, the students second. The one to one match, no problem. And in order to give the students a second chance, they said the next step would be one to twos. If there still hospital number one positions open and the students at number two, uh, the, had them at number two, then that would be the next step. And it'd be two to two and one to three and one to, and on and on and on, all the various permutations. But the flaw was that the student had a program listed at number three and missed out on his top two choices, his or her top two choices, then he or she might be shut out by a program even if it had them listed in its own group, okay, its top group, because it might fill before that step step occurred. And it was that flaw that, that was noted by Hardy Hendren. Hardy Hendron, who's a leader in pediatric surgery, one of the giants in pediatric surgery of his generation. When he was at, at uh, a senior, it rolled out when he was a senior in the Harvard Medical School class in 1951. And when the dean presented it, he raised his hand, saw immediately it was wrong, because he was, he was a top guy, and he was at risk for that, because he wanted to go to one of the Harvard programs, but he also wanted to consider one of the other top programs like Washington University, you know, it's huge, these huge programs. But he recognized that, that he would be at risk if everything got filled up and then he was down to his third choice and then he'd be got out of, out of, out of position, even though he might have been on the top list at, say, at Washington University. And so he pointed this out, and the dean of the medical school at uh, at Harvard Medical School wouldn't hear of it because he was invested in it. He was the head of the uh, American of Medical Colleges at the time who had spent millions of dollars devising this, testing it, uh, and and didn't want to change it at the last minute. And they got into an argument. And uh, Dr. Hendren said, wait, if you can just let me explain it, just give me some time to explain it. You've been talking for an hour. Then just give me ten minutes to explain it. Then everyone will see what's going on, and and that got him mad. And then Hardy, Dr. Hentran, turned to his classmates and says, do, "Do all of you see what I'm talking about?" And all of them raised their hand. And and the associate dean at the time at Harvard Medical School is a guy named Reginald Fitz, whose who's, 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 uh, grandfather described appendicitis okay so that's how far these roots, uh, roots go down said in kind of a stage whisper i think the young man has got a point and that that has this set the dean dean of harvard medical school off and he says i don't care if any of you get a get a get an internship and stormed out and so the medical students were left there just kind of wondering what in the world had happened and so they they kind of met at, at one of the dorms that had medical school dorms at the time, and they decided to organize. And so it's one of the first nationwide me- uh, student uprising medical school or, or otherwise probably in, in, in American history, they got word out to all the medical schools that they could, that there's going to be a meeting in New York city. Cause they figured that everyone could get to New York city the following weekend. And Hardy, um, uh, asked his fa- uh, father for a loan so they can hire a secretary and mailing costs and reproduction costs and telephone costs because it cost money to, to telephone cross-country cross, cross country then, back then. And they got about half the medical students, to, uh, medical schools to send representatives. And, um, and they said, okay, this is, you know, we gotta unite. We gotta, gotta, gotta say that, you know, we, we don't want this to continue and that we're willing to not participate if if this goes through. Um, and they got an audience with the with the match committee, with the ad hoc match committee, and so what Hardy did was he presented an alternative where uh, a student could hold a place unless he or she got an appointment higher on his or her preference list, and that's called deferred deferred uh, uh, acceptance option. That actually is now accepted practice in game theory management, and that's the plan that was adopted. So. The medical students helped shape the modern match. They've gone through a number of iterations since then. But it's so fundamental to economics and decision making that the guy who devised it, uh, Alvin Roth, who's an economist at Stanford and Harvard, got the Nobel Prize for it. And the second kind of epilogue is that when the match was challenged in 2002 and some uh, the plaintiff said that the hospitals were conspiring to, uh, 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 to restrict participation between, uh, medical students and hospitals acting on their own. That was a, that was an antitrust violation. The participation of the students in devising the mask, uh, in the match originally was used as, uh, as evidence that the students actually were participating and helped define the, the match process. So, now it's protected by statute, but that was the that was part of the argument. Crazy story, isn't it?
1: It's really crazy. It's uh, it's good to know that it was something developed by medical students in order to, you know, protect ourselves in the match. So that's really interesting. Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's it's a great story.
1: So, um, to kind of wrap up the segment, um Knowing all of these stories and the history, I'm curious to know what you find to be the most fascinating from our history and then also thinking about the future of our profession. Somehow in the realm of what you know historically, what excites you the most about the future?
0: I think if you take a look at the fundamental advances of surgical history. The first one was anesthesia. And that came about because two guys, Thomas Morton and Crawford Long, just two practitioners, were participating in ether frolics where they inhale ether and they kind of laugh at each other's antics. And and they noticed that their mates under the influence of ether were unconscious and couldn't feel pain. And they had the insight to apply that to surgery, okay? But the next advance came out of basic science, and that's antisepsis and sepsis. And that came out of bacteriology. That came from Pasteur and, and Theodore Koch doing basic operations on the behavior of bacteria in surgical wounds and how to disinfect and how to keep from infecting uh, surgical uh, surgical incisions. And so bacteriology was really the first basic, basic science associated with surgery. And then every subsequent advance and surgery came from an advance in basic science, and one can say that Walter Cannon's work in physiology and metabolism informed fluid and electrolyte therapy and the treatment of shock. Okay, and that that uh, Judah Folkman identified as one of the is the third basic advance that made surgery safe First is anesthesia. The second is is asepsis, and the third one is fluid and electrolyte therapy, which is interesting to, th- to think about. Minimally invasive surgery came about because of advances in illumination, fiber optic, fiber optics, the rod lens system, camera chip imaging, all in combination with the creation of engineering uh, surgical instruments at the lo- at the end of long sticks, so it can do laparoscopic surgery, and that revolutionized surgery. Now surgery is being tailored in response to genetics of human cancers, and so it's anyone's guess to think about where surgery is going to be taken next. Okay, uh, it's going to be in response though to some advanced and basic sciences my guess is that informatics and the use of big data is going to further refine surgery and i think that's the that's the next big, big step where expert systems will further refine surgical decision making so that they are hardwired and less subject to human error and then what's really way out there is probably wireless control of surgical instrumentation so that uh, they may not have any connections at all with the outside and so you can introduce these these surgical robots that are miniaturized and do the operation completely from from something that is injected into the abdomen for example or the chest and you have these self assembly of uh, robotic surgical systems that can do the stuff that you need to do such as cut cautery you know hemostasis and uh, and do the things that need to be done it's it's truly incredible because there are some brilliant people out there doing stuff right now that is uh, that is really on the edge. My favorite is robotic colonoscopy, where a colleague of mine is, and I'm you know he's telling me so there's really no secret is 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 doing the reverse of capo, capsule endoscopy, except the capsule has got legs on it and it's got surgical instruments on it, so it can. You know, as distasteful as it can seem, crawl into the anal rectum, go up the colon, insufflate, sample what needs to be sampled, put it in the bag, cinch the bag, and be expelled for analysis, which to me is like crazy. So I'm happy that things like that are going on, but it's it's within the realm of possibility. And I'm, I'm sure that we are going to be shocked to see what's going to happen in the next twenty years.
2: So, for those of us uh, who are listening to you now and want to be involved more, uh, do you have any tips or, or tricks for those listeners who want to stay engaged with you? Well, I'm un- unbelievably
0: accessible. <laughs> you know, I've uh, there's it's it's incredible how many people have come up to me and just just ask you know how can how can i get involved in the surgical history group and uh it's not that i uh have granny insights but i've got excitement for it and i can i can help them help them get involved i think the most important thing though is 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 to is to have a have a healthy engagement with the surgeons that you have available because they share that i think that's the thing that always is is fascinating about surgeons and surgery is that they're interested in procedures and in gadgets, and uh, uh, once you get the step of getting to do surgery, then the rest of it's e- the rest of it's easy. Justin Randolph, one of the fathers of pediatric surgery, says that pediatric surgery isn't hard to do; it's hard to get to do. And so, the thing to do is to is to uh, get into a residency and, and learn how to do surgery, and then just go along for the ride. If you've got an inventive spirit, there's plenty of plenty of innovation going on in surgery that you can participate in.
1: That's great, so we'll move forward into our final five questions now, just for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Okay, um, some more questions. <clears throat> so <laughs> okay, these are easier. So our first question for you, and let's remove surgical history reading. Okay. What are you reading right now for pleasure, or what is your favorite book?
0: <sighs> I'm reading The History of Bees, I think that's one of those things that you know it's science fiction, and I like the inventiveness of human mind, and it kind of gets me out of the, out of the out of the kind of day to day surgery stuff because I, so much of my day is spent reading stuff for the surgical history group and the and my uh, responsibilities of maintaining the the blog for uh, a general surgery, the history of surgery, and for pediatric surgery. And so that that kind of answers that question. I think it's uh, it's always amazing the creativity that's out there, and we we just don't we just don't connect with it.
2: Do you have any hobbies outside of surgical history? Yeah, I'm a swimmer. I uh, it's I used to
0: be a runner until I got to be too old and too fat for running. Uh, but swimming is uh, it takes the load off your joints, and it's and it's the repetitive motion and the kind of the you know, just 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 to me it's clean and it and, and it's healthy i i have actually have goggles that have my prescription in it so that i can see the band-aids on the bottom of the pool and keep me from getting getting completely uh completely deadened with monotony but i i, I think of things while i'm doing while i'm swimming and and usually has got has to do with something like there's some insight about how to write something or some other subject i can I can, uh, I can look into the, the thing about history is there's always something more. You always find something that you can, you can, you can think about or write about which is fascinating.
1: So when you operate, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if not, just our question is, what do you listen to? What could we find on your music playlist?
0: When I operate and it's with someone who we have to concentrate, it's always classical. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's soothing and 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 it's good background music and it holds my interest while they're doing like tying knots or something that's pretty routine. I know they can do it. If it's with a senior resident, then it's usually something more upbeat like jazz. And so my interests usually run from classical to sonatas and concertos and opera for the junior residents, <laughs> and then for the senior residents, it's you know, usually cool jazz and and.
2: And uh, and more upbeats or more upbeat music. So if you were able to have a intimate dinner with three legends of medicine or surgery, who would those three individuals be? Well I'll tell you what, I think I think one of them would definitely be Coop. Sierra Coop
0: because he's such a principled guy and he and I'd be intimidated for sure because he's so such a principled guy, but he won the respect of his opponents, even though he had opinions about political hot button items like abortion and AIDS that were not popular at the time, but he won the respect. And I think that he'd definitely be one. I think another would, would he wasn't, he wouldn't be a real conversationalist, but he'd, He'd be able to spin a good story once you got him going. It would be Halsted, you know, Halsted. Halsted was was in on the beginning of so many different things because he uh, he basically invented intestinal surgery by by discovering that you know how to do it in anastomosis. That's how that's a that's how fundamental the guy is. And obviously he he had his handicap of being being addicted to cocaine and morphine, but he'd be he'd be he'd be another and the third one would, would you know i i, I hate to, i kind of hate to say it but it'd be it'd be a, a a political figure and the political figure would be someone like winston churchill who had the same thing like he he had to hold fast the things they thought were right even in the face of The entire country being against him. And then it was his forthrightness that, 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 that allowed Britain to survive and during its darkest hour. And so it's a, it's, it's that kind of guy. You know, it's, it's hard for me to be in kind of reticent. And, uh, you know, you know, this will, you know, Asian Americans are just, just don't, just don't sparkle at conversation. You know what I mean? So. I'd be a listener for sure, and uh, I'd be I'd be listening to these guys, and 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 maybe tossing out a question, but I don't think that once they got together, they'd be they'd be they'd be uh, shy about about speaking out.
1: Great, and our last question. So you already said that you your hobby is swimming. Um, if you were to compete in the Olympics, um, any event, summer, winter, doesn't have to be something that you do. What would you like to compete in?
0: I think the only thing that I'd be able to compete in realistically it would be curling but uh i think that's the only (laughs) that my my knees and body would be able to stand but i'm always amazed at the at the spectacle of, of 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 human physical achievement and i'm always amazed at what people can do
2: that's awesome well thank you so much dr nakayama for joining us for uh this wonderful episode on behind the knife uh, again, if there are individuals who are out there listening, uh, interested in uh, being involved, uh, please join the uh, ACS History of Surgical Community. If they're interested, they can they can email me. Uh, my email's
0: all over the place. I get emails from, <laughs> from every quarter, but uh, you, it's best to you know, contact me through my uh, uh, University of North Carolina email, and that's Don D O N underscore Nakayama. That's all A's N-A-K-A-Y-A-M-A, at... Med.unc.edu. Until next time, dominate the day.